0: Good evening. Thank you, music team, for leading us. My name is Wes Conjure. I know some of y'all out there know me. Some of y'all have no idea who this guy is up here, so I just want to quickly introduce myself. Um, For the last two years or so, I've been over on the other side of Middle Earth, as we like to call it. Uh, over there with the little hobbits, you know, you'll see them out there playing gaga ball and playing basketball or trying to play basketball, some of them, and let's not tell any of them that I'm over here teaching college group because I won't tell you what they call you, but just to let you know, it starts with an M and ends with Ordor, and if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you know you know what I'm talking about. Uh Mordor is what they call it over here, but I don't think y'all are like that at all. I think that y'all are amazing people, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to come and teach y'all God's Word. I just finished up uh, three years in seminary, the Master's Seminary, and now serve here as a pastoral assistant at the church, and then my beautiful wife, I like to embarrass her, she's back there at the back, Sarah, so... Anyway, it's a joy and a privilege to be here. We have a lot to cover. We're going to be in 2 Chronicles. As you can see, we're continuing our study in the Roots 66 series. So if you would, open up in your copy of God's Word to 2 Chronicles. We're going to start where some of y'all don't like to start. We're going to start at the end of the story. And I'll explain while we do that. I'm going to go ahead and pray. or Excuse me, I'm going to read the text and then pray But 2 Chronicles Chapter 36, we're going to look at verses 22 through 23. I am reading from the ESV version. Don't stone me for that. If you're curious why, uh, you can come ask me later. But something new for me to do tonight. So Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled... The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, whoever is among you of all his people, May the Lord, his God, be with him. Let him go up. Let's pray before we go. Father, we thank you that you are the sovereign Lord. You are the one to whom all creation is to praise. Lord, you, as we just sing, are the one um, who has sent your Son, the long-awaited Messiah, the one who the prophets pointed to, Lord Jesus, you came for us to redeem a people for your glory, and now, Lord, we want to be children of the promise, those who have hope in a God whose promises and purposes never fail, and Lord, we want to run our race well, we want to sing your glories, Lord, we want to do the work and the labor you've given to us, and how are we going to do that? Oh, Lord, we see it in your word. As you teach us, as you grow us, as you make us to be more like Christ, help us to learn from the book of Chronicles, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Lord, of what you would have us to do and to be and to follow after you well. We give you all the glory tonight. Amen. I have a question to get us going tonight. Um, when you are going through difficult times, when you know, life just seems to hit rock bottom, as you turn to the scriptures, I just want you to think, what are passages that come to your mind that give you hope? What are some verses that you turn to to give you hope, to spark a sense of hope in your faith? Some of them that immediately come to my mind are Lamentations 3, 22 through 25, Romans 8, 28, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. These and many other verses are, are those that I turn to over and over again to give me hope. Maybe one of yours was on this list, or maybe you had, you know, others that I didn't name here, but when you think of going to God's Word to find hope, does your mind turn to the book of Chronicles? Probably not, right? In fact, that might be one of the last places that that you would ever turn to, one of the last places that you would even think of for finding hope. Like, Chronicles? I I mean, there's nothing in Chronicles, but... Chronicles, right? Genealogies, just information about Levites and priests and sacrifices and this temple thing and, and this guy and these kings and there's nothing I can go to in Chronicles to give me hope, right? Well, I'm glad you said that because as you, you know, peer into the depths of God's indescribable riches here both in 1st and in 2nd Chronicles, what you behold is a treasure trove of hope. As Tom Schreiner writes, he says, quote, Chronicles is fundamentally a book of hope. You see the the aim, the the message, the theme of 1st through 2nd Chronicles is that God restores hope. He restores hope to returning exiles and he restores hope for you today. If you're taking notes, which I hope you are, you would see here that the title of our sermon is The God Who Restores Hope. The God Who Restores Hope. Commentators and scholars have rightly noted that the book of Chronicles is one of the most neglected books in the Old Testament, if not all of Scripture. This goes all the way back to the Septuagint, that Greek translation of the Old Testament. They believed that the book was nothing better than a, a mere supplement, um, something that was just thrown together to um, show us the things that were omitted. Liberal scholars have treated the book disparagingly, both First and Second Chronicles. They, they've treated it as nothing better than a second-rate citizen, a, a second fiddle, if you would, to Samuel and Kings at best, or a, quote, reworked, altered, and falsified volume at worst. As we turn to the church today, things don't really get much better, right? Um, We see statements like these. As one writer, he called the first few chapters of 1 Chronicles that we went through last time as, quote, the scriptural sleeping aid of the Bible. Man, If you can't go to sleep, just pick up Chronicles and it'll put you right out. Another has called the book, quote, mentally exhausting and, quote, theologically unclear. That's the interpretive landscape as we come to these books. Now, I doubt that there's anybody in here that has these same sentiments. Those are probably not the things that you are thinking of as we as a church have a high view of scripture, but there are probably many in here that are trying to wonder, what's this book all about? What, what, What is 1 Chronicles? What is 2 Chronicles already you know, all about? Well, Jonathan did a great time walking us through 1 Chronicles, and as he pointed out, and I think I need to refresh us because it's been two weeks, and I know that you probably forgot what you ate for breakfast this morning, that we need to remember that not just with Chronicles, but with any book for that matter, we have to understand the historical context of the book. Who was the audience, and what was the situation that the author was trying to address, And that's why I read for us here 2 Chronicles 36, because this gives us our interpretive framework. It's striking here how the narrator chooses to end his accounts. Unlike Kings, he doesn't end it in exile, but rather he chooses to end it in restoration and return. Not just any specific restoration, but but note the the sovereign working of God within this return. He says in verse twenty two that quote the word of the Lord, so that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. And we see that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Uh, verse twenty three: The Lord, the God of heaven, has given to me. It is the Lord who has charged me. To build him a house the lord his god be with him let him go up so then it was yahweh who not only brought his people into exile because of judgment it was also yahweh who brought his people through the exile and it will be yahweh who will bring his people hope as he restores them after the exile this conclusion gives us the, the window through which we need to interpret that we need which we need to understand what is going on in this book, because this is a book about restoration. This is a book about hope. Unlike Kings Chronicles, was not written to explain the exile. We remember back when we went through First and Second Kings, that was to show us uh, to show the the people. This is why you're why you are where you are. You turned away from the word of the Lord. When the prophets came, you despised them. You despised Yahweh in his word. This is why you are in exile. The chronicler, on the other hand, was writing for a different purpose, to a different group of people at a different time period. He's writing to what some call the exilic babies. Now, those who were born into exile, who grow up in exile, and now we're returning out of exile. And we can imagine, right, as they are leaving Babylon, as they are leaving Persia, the expectations that they had. All right, it's gonna be a renewed Israel. All right, we're gonna rebuild the temple and we're gonna have a robust devotion to God. Is that what happened when they returned? No, not at all, right? Garrett is about to go through Ezra and Nehemiah and to show us what life was really like for those returning exiles. And it could be put as anything but superb. In fact, life for those returning exiles, that community was, quote, difficult, discouraging, and compromising, as one commentator put it. They were plagued by turmoil within. We see them committing spiritual adultery yet again. We see that they are committing a moral failure yet again, and they're plagued by turmoil without as political persecutors are assaulting God's people every step of the way. And so it is within that context, a land with no king, a land with no wealth, a land with no glory, a land with a temple that was but a shadow of what it used to be. It was within that context that the author writes. And so then the question that he wanted to answer was a far different nature than King's. The restoration community was now inquiring, who are we? Who, who are we? I thought, I thought we were supposed to be God's people. but th- This is where we're at, oh God. Are we still the people of God? Do God's promises still hold true for us today? Can we start a new life, a new relationship with our God? How would God desire for us to live and worship Him? And so then, it is within that scope that the chronicler writes to restore their hope. If you're, again, taking notes, you can write down the theme. The theme, if we could summarize what 2 Chronicles is all about. And yes, I did steal this from Jonathan last week. But 2 Chronicles restores hope to returning exiles by showing them God's promises and His purposes have not failed, and so God wanted to give them hope through these books, and not just hope for them, right? Not just hope for those who lived 2,000 years ago, hope for you. And you're like, okay, well, well, how, Wes? I want to, I want, I want to have hope. How does He go about sparking my hope? Well we can see that the chronicler proceeds to give you hope by focusing on three major themes. Three major themes throughout the book. You could call it his strategy, right? If his aim is to give you hope, his strategy to give you that hope is by focusing on three themes. The first one is that God has chosen a people. That's 1 Chronicles chapters one through nine. Second, God has chosen the house. And not just any house, we see that he has chosen the house of David there in the second half of 1 Chronicles, and he has chosen the house of the Lord, the first nine chapters of 2 Chronicles. And not only has God chosen a house, but God has chosen a response. He has chosen how God's people are to respond. You will either seek God and delight in his divine blessings, or you will forsake God And suffer his divine retribution. And so we've already looked at the first two. We've seen that God has chosen a people. Saw that there in the genealogies. How he chose a man Abraham to birth a nation. A man David to be a king. A clan Levi to lead and worship. And we also saw that God had chosen the house of David. That he initiated a eternal, unconditional covenant with David. And so while the present seemed hopeless, as they sat under a foreign king, is writing to tell them, take heart, Israel. Take heart. You are God's chosen people. You have a king. He is coming. God will not fail in his promises and his purposes to David and to you. So then have hope. That brings us then to 2 Chronicles, right? So we've looked at 1 Chronicles. Second Chronicles picks up this theme of God choosing the house of the Lord. You see in Chronicles intertwined with the Lord building a house for David is David building a house for the Lord. I say that all the way back in 1 Chronicles 17. That's like a, a picture of like a braided rope or a, a bracelet where these two themes are bound. They're intertwined so tightly together you could call them interconnected. That it is while David is expressing a heart and a desire to build a house for the Lord that the Lord says, no, David, I'm going to build a house for you, an eternal house, one in which one of your sons will sit upon the throne forever and ever and ever. And as the narrative continues on then, we see that it's notable David's reign, his life is not much as in view as are his preparations and his plans to build the temple. In fact, we see in Chronicles, a focus on the Davidic king, serving in the role of a priest, serving in the role of a lead worshiper, more so than we do anywhere else in the historical narrative. And as we continue on, as you continue to look through the other kings in uh, Second Chronicles, we see each one tied to the temple, that um, they will seek God And that they will be faithful to obey the word of God, they will be faithful to worship God in the temple, they will take care of God's temple, or they will be worthless kings who will tear down, who will neglect, and who will offer profane worship outside or even within the temple. And so then the the picture that I want to put into your mind here is as this narrative is building from first Chronicles 17 to 2nd Chronicles chapter 9 is, is that of a roller coaster. Now, some of y'all are like, man, I've never been on a roller coaster in my life. Other y'all are like, I love roller coasters. But when you get on the roller coaster, at the very beginning, it just slowly is moving upward and upward and up. To the pinnacle of where he's trying to get in the books of Chronicles, and that is the unveiling of the house of the Lord. So we see here, God has chosen the house of the Lord. I am going to look at five phases, five phases really quickly of what this unveiling of the temple looked like. First, we need to know the builder. We need to know who it was that was doing this building project. Much like David, Solomon's main purpose in the storyline centers around the temple. Right, and unlike First Kings, there's no prolonged discussion about David, uh, Excuse me, about Solomon establishing his kingdom. I mean, there's no mention of him building his own house. I mean, we don't see him anywhere asserting his power over adversaries. And most striking of all, there's no reference here anywhere to David's. Uh, excuse me, the Solomon's sin. But he is pictured as a prime example of what a godly king should look like. And the reason for that, I think, is because for the purpose of what the chronicler is trying to do, Solomon exists for one purpose and one purpose only. That's to build the temple. We can see it all the way back in 1 Chronicles 22, 8, as he is specially chosen by God to build the temple. And then we see later on in 1 Chronicles 28 that he was specially commissioned by David to build the temple. In fact, it would seem that Solomon's devotion, his relationship to the Lord is characterized by his relationship to the temple. As as Solomon is faithful to build, he is faithful to God. He receives blessing and honor. And if he forsakes to build, he will be found unfaithful in the sight of God. And so that was Solomon, the man specially chosen and specially commissioned to build what David could not. The second phase, then, of this unveiling of God's house are the preparations. And we have already seen that David has done much in this regard, that David has already prepared the plans. He has organized, he has received divinely inspired blueprints, architecture. Some of y'all in here have houses, many of y'all don't. But man, wouldn't it be great if God just gave you your dream house, gave you the plans, right? That's what God does here. He gives David divinely inspired plans just as he did for the tabernacle. But not only that, David organized officials. He organized a special free will offering. And so, so far, so good, right? David uh, has given Solomon the plans. He's given him finances. He's even given him leaders to help him in building. Turn over to 2 Chronicles chapter 1. We see that the preparations continue to go on. Now Solomon needs more. Uh, He needs much more in order to build the house of the Lord. And so in chapter 1 then, we see that Solomon acquires wisdom. He acquires wisdom, not just wisdom to rule, but wisdom to build. See in chapter 1, verse 1, Solomon had established himself in his kingdom. The Lord his God was with him. And made him exceedingly great. He had an established kingdom. He had unity among all Israel. And we see down in verse seven, he asked now for wisdom. Wisdom, as, verse, as verses go on in verse nine and verse ten, wisdom to go out and to come in before this people, so that he can govern them, so that he can rule over them justly and rightly. But not just that. Look at chapter two, verse twelve. He has wisdom. Hiram, the king of Tyre, says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who made heaven and earth, who has given King David, look at that, a wise son, one who has discretion and understanding, who will build a temple for the Lord and a royal palace for himself. God has given David wisdom to build, excuse me, God has given Solomon wisdom to build the temple. But not only does Solomon acquire wisdom, Look back at chapter 1 and verse 14. Solomon acquires wealth. He gathers together chariots and horsemen. So he has political stability. He gathers together silver and gold. He gathers together sycamore. All this for economic stability. That if David, or excuse me, I keep saying David, Solomon is going to build this temple. He needs political stability. He needs economic stability. And so God is preparing him, giving him exactly what he needs to do that. But not just wisdom and wealth, we also see that Solomon acquires the workers. He gets the workers to help him build in chapter 2, both through diplomacy and other means. He gets the resident sojourners, the aliens of the land, for the manual labor. And he also gets a skilled man, a man who had understanding, a man who could uh, execute any design given to him, just like we saw back with the tabernacle. And so then we we see that Solomon has everything that he needs. He has all the preparations given to him. And chapter two, verse one, gives us the defining moment as Solomon had been commissioned as his whole life was for this purpose, We see chapter 2, verse 1, Solomon purposed to build a house, a temple, for the name of the Lord. So then we come to the third phase. And Solomon has the preparations, and now he begins the construction. The construction of the temple. We see first that the temple itself is constructed in chapter 3. Before we see the temple furnishings are constructed in chapter 4. Look with me at chapter 3 verse 1. Notice real quick the location. Where is this house of the Lord to be built? We see that it's to be built in Jerusalem, right? The holy city, the place where God had chosen to set his name, the place where only God is legitimately to be worshiped. But not only that, it's on Mount Moriah, right? That brings us back to Genesis chapter 22, that after Abraham had offered up his son in the test of faith, what did God do? God reiterated to him the covenant blessings and promises that God would greatly bless Abraham, that God would multiply his seed and grant him rule over his enemies and bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham. And so we see here the the linkage between the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant, that the promises of God are hurtling forward in fulfillment, that the faithfulness of God is on full display. But not only on Mount Moriah, but this is the place where the Lord had appeared to David, his father. The place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. If we remember, we recall back in chapter 21, Uh, First Chronicles where David had sinned and committed this egregious sin that it was here on this very place where David had offered up his sacrifice to the Lord. The Lord heard him and the Lord turned from his anger and the Lord showed favor and forgave David. And so now it would be that every time God's people were ascending up to the temple to offer their sacrifice to the Lord that they could remember that God, just as he forgave David, could now forgive them. God is one who shows grace and mercy to all those who seek him. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 20. Notice how Solomon accomplishes the construction. Verse 4, chapter 4, verse 20 says that Solomon made all these things as prescribed. Solomon was faithful in the work. He didn't compromise on the work. He showed care and attention to the work. And he did exactly as God had entrusted him to do. And so we see chapter 5, verse 1, the work was finished. But not all was finished. We see phase 4 and the dedication. Phase 4 and the dedication. Here the, the narrative begins to pick up intensity. We're climbing, right? We're, we're getting there to the top of that roller coaster. We're getting to the to the the height of the attraction, the zenith of God's glory. And so chapter 5 says that Solomon begins his dedication by bringing in the Ark of the Covenant. And we see the glorious procession that goes on here, right? We're seeing the the masses thronging around. We see the, the elders of Israel, the heads of the tribes. We see the Levites taking this this Ark of the Covenant, making it through the sea of the people. We see sacrifices being offered beyond number. We see here singers and musicians lifting up their voice as they're being reminded of the Ark of God's presence as it's going through the people and, and headed to the temple, that they're lifting up their voice, and what are they saying they're saying, Praise be to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And then we see that in this glorious procession, as God is going to come down their the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud at the end of verse 13, so that the priests could not stand to minister. Because of, the, uh, because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house. Just as it had for the tabernacle, God's glory now filled the temple. God's cloud of glory, that, that cloud of glory that depicted his person was magnificently revealed that, that his presence now dwelt among his people that God had come down to dwell with his chosen people. And so Solomon's dedication continues in chapters 6 through chapter 7. Not only does he bring in the ark, not only does the cloud of glory come down and, and fill the temple, we see now that Solomon offers up prayer and sacrifice, and y'all have already done a great job going through Solomon's prayer, so my aim is not to go through Solomon's prayer here, but I do want to draw your attention to some special observations. Look at me right there at verse 18. and chapter 6, verse 18, that that while the heavens, right, the the highest of the heavens cannot contain God, much less this house contain God, nevertheless, as we see it, Verse 20, this was where God had promised to set his name. that this is the place that God had prescribed to not only dwell among his people, to make his glory known among his people, but where he was to be worshipped by his people. And not only that, but as you go on, you observe over and over again, situation after situation, that God was going to be the one Who is going to be not only great and transcendent, but imminent and near. As Solomon goes situation after situation to show that when the people confess their sin, God would be gracious. God would hear. God God would hear their cries. He would look upon their hardships. He would answer and that he would forgive. This was to be a place of daily reminder for God's people. He was there for them. He was there to be worshipped. He was there to care. He was there to love. He was there to restore his people. And so as Solomon is lifting up this prayer, he's crying out to God, chapter seven verse one tells us that as soon as as his prayer was finished, fire came down from heaven we see that God strikes down from heaven, just as he did with Moses, just as he did with Aaron when they offered sacrifices before the the tabernacle in Leviticus chapter nine, God's glory appears to the people, a dazzling display of fire, right? This fire, this awesome spectacle of God's glory, God showing the people, God reminding the people, God revealing to the people that he as their God, who would accept their worship, that they were his chosen people, that David was his chosen house, that the temple was his chosen dwelling place. So now once again, God's glory dwelt among his people. Once again, fire and cloud dwelt among his people. And so as all the people saw, as all the people we see here in the end of verse 3, they fell to their faces and they worshiped and they gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. God is still good, right? He's still good. His steadfast love still endures forever. And and is God, as great as this glorious display is, is God not nearer to you, believer, than he ever was to his people? Right? Are, are you not the temple of the Holy Spirit in which God himself dwells? Do you not have a closer communion with God than what Israel ever did? Do you not have immediate access to God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? If you are in Christ, the answer is yes. And so should you not to fall on your face and worship God and give him praise? For he is good. He will hear. He will look on your lowly estate. He too will pardon you. This brings us to the last phase of the construction, that is the finishing touch, right? Chapters 8 through 9 shows the finishing touches on this unveiling of God's house. Chapter 8 shows that as Solomon was faithful to build, God places the finishing touch by blessing Solomon with building projects, with wealth, with prestige among the nations. As we're going to see that Divine blessing always follows obedience and chronicles as it does here for Solomon. Not only that, but we see in chapter 9, the temple fulfilling its purpose, right? That the place where God's glory rested, it was to operate like a magnet, drawing in the nations to a true knowledge of God. And we see that in chapter 9. As the queen of Sheba comes, she is drawn to the glory of God. As she sees the splendor of Solomon, as she she beholds his wisdom, as she sees God at work in and among his people, we see that God is doing what God had chosen Israel to do. Chapter 9, verse 23, we see all the kings of the nations flocking to Israel to behold Israel's God. This is... Is who Israel was to be. This is the top, right? Like we have made it now to the top of this, this roller coaster, and we and we look out and and we're beholding the outstanding view, right? We're seeing the pinnacle of God's glory among His people in the Old Testament. That His steadfast love is on full display here in these chapters. Or if you like, we could put it in another way, that that like a volcano, as the, the narrative has been going, we see it building and building and building until there's a grand explosion of God's greatness, grandeur, and beauty here in these chapters. We behold the transcendence and the glory of our God, and at the same time, his eminence, his nearness with his people. The God who cannot be contained by a trillion galaxies now is dwelling among his people. As we move on, though, we need to answer a question, or maybe a, a series of questions, and that is, you know, why? What? What's the big deal? What's the purpose? Why is the chronicler at, uh, directing our attention towards the temple? You know, why is he focusing on David and Solomon in a priestly role? Well, what's the big deal about these Levites and these priests and And all this, well, again, the answer goes back to the audience. What was his purpose for writing? You see, for him, as one commentator put it, Israel's relationship with God, quote, rose and fell in connection with the establishment of the institutions that represented the presence of Yahweh. Or, in other words, when Israel did right with regard to the temple, the priests and the Levites, it always prospered. Conversely, when it did wrong in these areas, it always suffered. And so we see here the reason, the attention, why the whole narrative is building to this moment is because he is trying to both encourage God's people to give them hope that if they would function rightly to God in relation to the temple, that God would restore them. He would bring them back to this glorious time of David and Solomon. But it's not just that they have a restored hope. He's writing as well to show them that they have restored responsibilities. He is exhorting them through the retelling of this story that, hey, now you're in the land. Now you have a new temple. Now don't do what these guys did, all right? Do what David did. Do what Solomon did. Do what God's people were doing now at this time worship god rightly worship god through his word worship god with the right heart and through the right channels and if they did that israel could have hope that just as god had splendidly exalted his people during these reigns he could do it now again if if they responded rightly so that brings us then to the third theme that God has chosen a response. God has chosen a response. And if you're worried, how are we going to go through 26 chapters in a matter of the rest of this sermon? Don't worry. We're not going to go through 26 chapters. All right. Turn with me to chapter 7. Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 12. You see if 2 if Chronicles, First and 2 Chronicles, there's like a roller coaster building to the top, and they get to it, and we see the, the pinnacle of God's glory, the zenith of the ride, everything else is downhill, right? As soon as they get there, as soon as we get to the end of Solomon, they drop. And we see that the rest of 2 Chronicles is nothing but an up and down roller coaster full of drops and heights, loop-de-loops and twists and turns as God's people are spiraling downward and downward into judgment. But it's in that that God gives them the response. That if they would respond as God has prescribed, they can have hope that God will forgive and he will restore. Look at verse 12. It says, that the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among, among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and i will forgive their sin and i will heal i will heal their land verse 19 but if you turn aside you forsake my statutes and my commandments that i have set before you and you go and serve other gods and worship them then i will pluck you up from my land that i have given you and this house that i have consecrated for my name i will cast out of sight and i will make it a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. You see, it is here that God has given his people a response. You have one of two options. Either option one, you are going to seek the Lord, or option two, you're going to forsake the Lord. On the one hand, you either humble yourself, confess your sin, turn from it, and trust in your great God, or option two, you turn from God and his word. You harden your heart and you continue in your sin. Notice what the chronicler, the narrator is going to do throughout the rest of the story, right? He is going to do something rather unique. He's going to lift up each consecutive king in his reign, and he's going to call his audience to examine. Examine them, right? Like a gift shopper, he's going to call them the as a gift shopper in the store goes around the um, the aisle and picks up an object, looks at it, examining it for marks or defects, and then puts it down to the next one. He's calling them to, to look at each consecutive king throughout the book to examine them. Or you think of it as consecutive biographies, right? Each king has his own story. Each king will come and go, and they will either respond to God rightly. And the the, the narrator, in a sense, is calling them to imitate that king. Or they will forsake God, and the narrator will tell them to not forsake that king. In fact, just reject that guy, discard him, forget about him. Concerning this point, one commentator said this, that the chronicler portrays the generation of each Davidic king as a separate vignette. Each king and his people have their own story, whether it be to rise by seeking Yahweh or to fall by forsaking Yahweh they, his immediate audience, had to determine whether they would be the ones who seek Yahweh or forsake him. The rest of the book is an exhortation to the restored Israelites to take up, read this narrative, and to seek the Lord. And if they did, then they had hope As God said here to Solomon in chapter seven, that if they sought God, even in the midst of all the troubles and the sins that they were going through, God could restore them. In fact, God will hear and God will restore. He has promised so. But if they read this narrative and they forsake God and they turn from God, then rest assured, he is telling them, you too will fall just like your fathers did Before you. So, this then is a warning of exhortation to his people. And so, this up and down narrative continues to go along. Does this not apply to y'all today, right? Is this not the same God who is sitting on his throne who is calling you to a response today? To either seek him through the Lord Jesus Christ. The answer is is yes. He is calling. You would cry out to God, He will hear and He will forgive. And he will restore you back in your relationship with him as 1 John chapter 1 says, that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But if you're not a believer here today, if you are presently forsaking the Lord and turning your heart away from him in rebellion, understand that what awaits for you is not just physical exile, but eternal exile. Eternal judgment, as 2 Thessalonians says, away from the presence of the Lord, away from the glory of his might, that you will suffer under the just wrath of God for all eternity. Take hope, right? Take hope. God is giving you an invitation here through 2 Chronicles. He he is giving you this better news. He is giving you an opportunity of hope to be uh, restored to him through the Lord Jesus Christ that you can live forever in his heavenly Jerusalem with Christ Jesus as your king. All you have to do is respond rightly to the gospel offer to turn from your sins and repentance and seek God in true saving faith. So the exhortation to you is just as it was to audience thousands of years ago, seek God. Do not forsake him. Do not turn your heart away from him in rebellion. And so much can be learned throughout the rest of this book. And, and so my my favorite thing that I want to do for y'all is give y'all homework. I know y'all love that, right? I'm giving y'all homework to tonight to take up Second Chronicles, to look, to start in chapter 10 and go throughout the rest of the book this week, next week, your spring break, because I know that's what you all want to do during spring break, right? And just read, go through each story of each king and see how when they seek God, there is divine blessing, and how when they forsake God, there is divine retribution. And may your heart be exhorted, may it be exhorted to follow and to trust in God today. As we wrap up our time, my desire is that you would leave saying the same thing as David Howard Jr. said in his Introduction. He says, quote, I now regard Chronicles as one of the most richest minds of spirituality in all of Scripture. Right? He's right. This truly is a mine of spiritual riches. And we have a God who restores hope. We, we have a God whose promises and purposes have not failed. They didn't fail for Israel. They're not failing for us. God has still chosen a people. God has still chosen a house. God has still chosen a response, and best of all, he has chosen his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son to be the the fullness of the manifestation of God's divine glory. That Jesus Christ came and he will come and return again, not just as the conquering king who will reign on his throne, but as the faithful high priest who will forever lead us in true and perfect worship in the millennial temple, as we see at the end of Ezekiel, and in the eternal temple, which is God himself. So for those of us who respond rightly, let us say, God is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the one who restores our hope. The Lord, when we did not have a right relationship with you, when we were stuck and dead in our sins and our trespasses, you made us alive together with Christ. If there's any today that have not responded rightly to the gospel, we pray that, Lord, they would today seek the Lord and be saved. And for those of us who are in Christ, Lord, let us look to the God who will fulfill his promises who will fulfill his purposes when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. We thank you, Lord. We give you glory. Amen.